If you tell your husband that you are fighting for your marriage and it sounds anything like this, because God told me to, because God hates divorce, because I believe in the sanctity of marriage, because I don't believe in divorce. All of those statements may be true, but if that's the primary reason you offer to your husband for why you're fighting for a better marriage, it is a pretty big slap in his face. You're listening to The Wise Wife Podcast. So you want a better marriage? Well then buckle up, buttercup. You're in the right place. So far this season, we've established some important truths. On episode 10, we talked about the importance of running quickly to battle and what it really means to not war against flesh and blood, but instead see the spiritual battle for what it truly is. We look to what God says about divorce and marriage and why we must not accept the world's or even the average church earthly weapons for fighting for a marriage and instead heed the call to pick up the divine weapons that Jesus has given us. In episode 11, we delved into why even the most devout believer can be distracted and attacked through legalism and the lies of being good enough to deserve God's favor, and that God's favor is not based on our works, nor are his delays based on a lack of our works. And yet so many times we question whether we are doing enough, and maybe that's why God isn't giving us what we're asking for, and that's simply just not how God works. If you missed either of those episodes, definitely recommend you go listen to them. But now we're ready to dive into the meat of season two of the Wise Wife podcast. We are going to start unpacking our divine weapons, the weapons that demolish strongholds. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. As we seek to understand these divine weapons and how it truly looks to not wage war as the world does, you are going to discover what I like to call understanding your spiritual assignment. While the world, your friends, your family, and even some pastors want to fill your head with the world's weapons and the world's way of waging war, you, my friend, are a wise wife. You're going to understand your spiritual assignment. In Ephesians, Paul clearly instructs the church of Ephesus on what it means to fight the right fight, as I often call it, to not be distracted by the circumstances we see in the natural, nor the earthly weapons that we want to use in our flesh. So an example of that, earthly weapons, they can be anything from resentment and anger, like, oh yeah, well, I'll show you attitude, right? To Those, those are weapons. To actual helpful things like counseling or therapy, which are meant to be supplements to healing, not the actual solution for healing. I get that that statement is super controversial for all the uber smart psychology types who love to explain away all human pain and suffering with a diagnosis and a label, along with a checklist of to-dos that can help you fix yourself. But the reality of the word of God is that all that science is utter foolishness if we don't deal with the spiritual wounds at the root of all those human responses. So I said what I said. Even the best human logic is all for naught if the person does not find spiritual healing for their spiritual wounds. 
Okay, I digress. Going to get me on a soapbox here, y'all. So let's look to Ephesians to learn about what our spiritual assignment looks like and how we can attack those spiritual wounds in a way that actually makes a lasting, healing, life-changing difference. To start, Paul is talking to the church of Ephesus, and he gives us a pretty good picture of who they were. In chapter one, he called them faithful followers of Christ, verse one. He commended them for having a strong faith in the Lord and love for Christians everywhere, verse 15. He said that he prays they will be given spiritual wisdom and understanding so they might grow in their knowledge of God, verse 17. And Paul prays that they will begin to understand the incredible greatness of God's power for those who believe in him, verse 19. I'm going to break this down. It tells us that when we are considered faithful followers of Christ, like he said in verse one, that it is proved by our strong faith in the Lord and our love for Christians everywhere. Verse 15, that when that happens, we can confidently expect to, number one, be promoted once we show ourselves faithful, in Paul's words, grow in their knowledge of God. Number two, we can expect to operate in strength and power under the full authority of Christ. And number three, we can expect to be set apart from those who are not living by the Spirit, or as I define it, the people who are living with a head knowledge of the faith, but lack true spiritual wisdom, which can be seen as head and heart knowledge of God's love. As Paul moves through the following chapters of Ephesians, he goes on to instruct the church on what that spiritual wisdom really is by teaching the church of Ephesus how to do spiritual warfare. That's the entire focus of this book of the Bible. Of course, spiritual warfare is reflected in so many other books as a complement to what Paul is teaching in depth here in Ephesians. But it is here in Ephesians that we really get a clear picture of how to war in the spirit and not get caught up in the earthly weapons. To begin, he establishes credibility for the church. He reminds them of who they are and who they are not, right? Chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, we have the same power in us that raised Christ. He also makes sure to really hit the point home that we can take no credit for our salvation. He reminds them that all of us, speaking about himself as well, were born with an evil nature, chapter two, verse three, and that they are actually no better than those who don't believe because, as he goes to say, we were once just like them and only by the grace of God are we changed. They are also made powerful through Christ and only by Christ. It has nothing to do with them, their works, or their deserving of it. He then goes on to contrast that with acknowledging that Satan is the mighty prince of the power of the air. So he is a very real threat here in the world and that unbelievers as Paul says, obey Satan, and that Satan is at work in the hearts of unbelievers. In chapter 3, Paul outlines the truth that there are rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, that this world we see and touch is not the only world. And yet he paints a beautiful picture of strength and authority by outlining in chapter 3 that our inner strength comes from the Holy Spirit, and our fullness of life and power comes from understanding how much God loves us. So he's established a few things here that are important for us to understand and examine in our own hearts. First off, number one, he says there are some requirements of us if we want to grow in spiritual authority and power, including love for Christians everywhere. 
Number two, the spiritual realm is real and powerful, going so far as to say that Satan is the mighty prince of power. Three, that if it weren't for Jesus choosing us, we would still be sitting in our evil passions and desires. And lastly, that our strength is a gift from the Holy Spirit, and with it comes a fullness of life. So if the culmination of all that is a fullness of life, like what does that look like? In this context, Paul's contrasting the type of life these devoted believers should have now that they are fully living in Christ's authority. In fact, the English word fullness used here is the Greek word pleroma, which literally means fullness, but generally refers to the totality of divine powers. So Paul is saying that our lives should be fully submitted to God and full of power. We should be experiencing and living with the fullness that is found in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. All of our life should be lived with the supernatural presence of God. That kind of totality doesn't really allow for fears, doubts, wayward thoughts, which sounds great, right? But also, if we're honest, sounds downright impossible. But what if we stopped using our humanness, our flesh, as a way of excusing our inability to live totally by the Spirit? What if we shed that excuse for just a moment and actually believe that we could live in fullness of life by the Spirit? Because when we live totally in the Spirit, not just with pieces of God, but allow Him to truly have all of us, we will then find life by the Spirit, like Paul talks about in Galatians 5, which of course leads to a life full of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't know about you, but a life with that kind of fruit means a life that has no room for fear, doubt, ego, selfishness, or entitlements. A life filled with that kind of fruit means a life that has no room for demonic distractions that come to steal, kill, and destroy our fruit. With that much of the Holy Spirit alive in us, there's no more room for offense, bitterness, rejection. If you do not have that fullness of life, this is where you stop and question, what is holding me back? What needs to change in me? Lord, please illuminate what is it that is keeping me from the fullness you have for me. This is really important because understanding your spiritual assignment means that you are ready to also take on that spiritual assignment. You are warriored up, as I like to call it. Or as Paul stated so eloquently in Ephesians 6.13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Steadfast, stoic, standing. One thing is for sure, if you have unrepentant sin in your life, it will destroy any hope of having the fruit of the Spirit or fullness of life. When we sit in resentment, bitterness, anger, pride, it hinders our ability to grow in the Spirit. I know that we can go on the good Christian girl autopilot and immediately write off all those things as if they're horrible and beneath us, because it doesn't take a saint to acknowledge that bitterness, resentment, anger, pride, that they are horrible. But let us not be too quick to dismiss them before examining our own hearts. Because resentment often looks like justified victimhood. How dare he do this to me? Or when we're receiving others' words of things like, he can't treat you this way. And bitterness, it often looks like standing up for what's right. Or punishing someone for treating us unfairly, keeping a scorecard. 
Anger often looks like you standing in the shower rehearsing what you wish you had said in the moment or that you wish you could say to someone. Now pride, oof, pride can be so sneaky. Hear me on this. If you tell your husband, estranged or not, that you are fighting for your marriage and it sounds anything like this, because God told me to, because God hates divorce, because I believe in the sanctity of marriage, because it's the right thing, because the kids deserve it, because I don't believe in divorce. All of those statements may be true, but if that's the primary reason you offer to your husband for why you're fighting for a better marriage, it is a pretty big slap in his face and it exposes something dark in you. I'm going to explain. Listen, how do you think it makes your husband feel to simply be a byproduct of your righteousness? To know that you are only fighting for your marriage because of reasons that have nothing to do with him. Because I would venture to say that the only reason you can't say the hard thing, the thing that is actually what your husband and every man wants to hear, is because your ego and pride won't allow it. It's too humbling, it's too painful, it's too vulnerable to actually say, I'm fighting for our marriage because I want you. Because there is no one else on this earth that I want to be with. Because I want to grow old with you and no one else. I'm fighting for our marriage because you are worth it. That takes courage to say. That takes vulnerability. The other statements, they are so steeped in spiritual superiority that you're actually aligning yourself with the enemy more than you are God in saying them. Fight me on this. I won't back down. It's pride. It's fear. It's self-righteousness to not have the humility in the face of total rejection and betrayal to say to your husband, I love you and I want you. That's why I'm remaining faithful to you and you alone. I'm on your team no matter what. Because pride often comes in the form of self-righteousness and feeling more superior. So if we appear to be doing the selfless thing, I'm fighting for our marriage, but in our heart, believing we are superior for doing it, then they're not selfless acts at all. Pride is in the heart of anyone who thinks they would never do the things their wayward spouse is doing as if they're morally and spiritually superior. And, and since pride is the worst of them all, I am going to say one more thing on this. Even if you are morally or spiritually superior to your hard-hearted or wayward spouse, by whose hand are you protected from falling for the same traps your spouse has fallen for? By whose hand are you so full of morality and goodness? Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. 1 Corinthians 131. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Galatians 6.14. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, James 1.16. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags, Isaiah 64.6. I mean, I could go all day, y'all. But I digress. The point I'm making here is that when we are going through a really challenging season and our heart is being sledgehammered, we cannot afford to let even a crack of this nasty stuff get in. Not bitterness, not anger, not pride, not offense, none of it. We have to be relentless in our protection of our heart and mind. We have to refuse to let the enemy have even one inch. Not today, Satan, not today. And all of that brings me to our first and most, most powerful divine weapon. This one thing is more powerful than all the fasting, all the praying, all the scripture reading, 
all of it put together, not doing this one thing actually null and voids not only your fasting and your prayers and your Bible time, but it also brings judgment onto yourself and even puts your salvation at risk. Of course, I'm talking about forgiveness. Jesus says, Matthew 6, 14 to 15, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Forgiveness of others not only unlocks God's forgiveness of our own depravity, but I believe it also unlocks powerful spiritual forces to fight on our behalf. It's obedience to forgive those who have hurt you. The Bible repeatedly talks about bitterness and unforgiveness in the same camp as the demonic. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. Ephesians 4, 26, 27. Or Paul talking about forgiveness in 2 Corinthians 2.10. And we do this so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan can never be forgiven and can never choose to forgive. So if you choose to not forgive, you are aligning yourself with Satan's values. And this inevitably invites demonic presence into your heart and mind. Like a dam that stops up an entire flowing river, unforgiveness will dry out any movement of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, for some of you, it's not other people you need to forgive. It's yourself. You need to forgive yourself. You need to shed the condemnation you still feel for what you've done. If you aren't willing to forgive yourself, you might as well be spitting in the face of Jesus as he hangs on the cross, as if it's not enough for you. For others, you need to release resentment you have toward God, as if he's wronged you by allowing the suffering to come. It's not quite forgiveness because you can't forgive if nothing wrong has actually been done to you. But some people are walking around with the same emotions of unforgiveness and resentment toward God. Go read Job 38 and rebuke yourself for thinking that you are God, that you have the understanding to even begin to feel indignant at what God has allowed in your life. Where were you when he laid the foundations of the earth? Since when have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? God is not your enemy. He is your ally. He is your protector. If this is you and you're harboring resentment toward God, I encourage you to do a study on the names of God and let it soak into your heart as you repent of your resentment toward him. No matter who it is or what they've done, we must forgive. There's just too much at stake. The lie of the enemy is that forgiveness is the same as permission or forgiveness is the same as letting them hurt you all over again. Those are lies, lies, lies. Forgiveness sets you free. Jesus set the holiest of examples for us as he took his last breaths on the cross and asked the Father to forgive those who had mercilessly tortured him, for they know not what they do. When I was a teenager, my family was involved with prison ministry. From the time I was 15 to 18 years old, every Monday night, our family would load up all our gear and hold a Christian church service in a federal prison. In this particular prison, the guys were all predominantly lifers, so they were serving life sentences or multiple life sentences. Rapists, killers, kidnappers, the worst of the worst, right? I will never forget at 15 years old that first time crossing over the threshold from free land and into the prison yard. I mean, I literally remember the exact moment I crossed over. 
it was a moment of reverence, first of all, for how little regard I had for personal freedom, how much I took it for granted. But ultimately, it was a moment where I felt the peace of the Holy Spirit come over me from a place of fear, anxiety, trepidation. I just immediately felt the presence of God come over me and I was at peace. Head on a swivel, yes. I wasn't going to be dumb about my current circumstances, but I felt immense peace, God's protection. That is living by the Spirit, going headstrong into what people think is crazy because God has put the call on your heart. But the real point of me telling you the story is this. For three years, our family served those men. Anyone was free to attend the service. And while we did have a few incidents of bad actors with bad intentions, by and large, the men that came each week faithfully bared their hearts in worship to God every Monday night. Men who could barely lift their heads in worship. It was such a beautiful picture of the parable Jesus told, which I mentioned last week when he dismissed the Pharisees' religiosity and commended the corrupt thief in Luke 18, 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Of course, the words of Jesus. Standing side by side in worship with these men, these men who had killed people in fits of rage with their bare hands, who had done horrible things to others. And yet here we were all worshiping together. The past aside, equal in our worship. Or maybe not even equal. Because Jesus just said in Luke that the criminal who begged God for mercy, who understood his wretchedness, that he is actually justified before God, that all those who exalt themselves will be humbled on the day of judgment. And honestly, in those days, I don't think I even knew what it really meant to be humbled before God. In some ways, as I shared with you last week, I still believed it was somehow my own doing that I was good and upright. But that experience was the first time I can remember where the Lord started gently whispering to me about the pride that lurked in my heart. It was there within the four walls of a federal prison that I first felt the hidden and honestly not so hidden pride in my heart being exposed. It was the sudden realization that we are not that different. If they could stand here restored and redeemed before God, just like me, then we're not all that different. These men who I, I learned to really love and respect, these repentant sinners who were fully aware of the judgment they deserved, they were also human. They made mistakes. And perhaps I would have made the exact same mistakes if I had walked in their shoes. Hearing their stories showed me that in some ways, we are all one or two bad decisions away from doing things that could forever alter our lives. And it was the first time I really began to think that perhaps I had no right to take credit for any of my so-called goodness. That confrontation of your own waywardness, the, the natural inclination to sin, the realization that left to your own devices, you would be a corrupt and broken person. That is what opens your heart to empathy. That realization is what equips you to refuse the enemy's schemes and not see your offender as the enemy, but instead see sin as the enemy. When you do those two things, when you humbly acknowledge your own 
penchant for sin and depravity. And when you see Satan as the one and true, only true enemy, that is when forgiveness flows. It's not enough to just repeat the words, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. We need the heart opening reality of humility mixed with empathy. And then bam, we stop holding grudges. We stop seeing ourselves as superior. We stop snapping in anger or bitter comments because we're no longer suppressing those emotions like a good little Christian ought to and then blowing a valve when we can't suppress it any longer. It's just all gone because there's no more deception. Can you still hurt even after truly forgiving? Yes. Forgiveness doesn't always take the pain away, but it certainly gets you closer to that. One thing for sure, if you don't forgive, the pain will just keep getting worse. The obsession with what they did will get more and more overwhelming. The scars will seem to never quite heal. Just because you're hurting doesn't mean you haven't forgiven. But if you're having to constantly take your bitter, angry, or self-absorbed thoughts captive, you're not going to the root. You're not dealing with the true spiritual wound. When we forgive, all the enemy's schemes stop working like they used to. The hurtful comments don't have as much sting. The betrayal doesn't shake your faith. When we forgive, we're aligning ourselves with Jesus and he rewards our obedience. So as I write about in the Wise Wife Blueprint, take out a piece of paper and start by writing down your own name. Then follow it with the people who have hurt you, the ones you're struggling with, the ones where there is brokenness, the people who consume your thoughts. Write down their names and begin to pray over the list. I forgive you. I release you. You owe me nothing. I forgive you. I release you. You owe me nothing. Friend, blessing is on the other side of obedience. Always. It is one of God's universal laws. Obedience, then the blessing. Obedience, then the blessing. This is the beginning of understanding your spiritual assignment the most powerful weapon which demolishes strongholds. Step into freedom today through the powerful act of forgiveness. Thanks for tuning in to the Wise Wife Podcast. Go to wisewifeblueprint.com and download your free battle strategy. These are the five things you must do if you want to see breakthrough in your marriage. And remember, it takes two to save a marriage. You and Jesus. Jesus.